Inspiring talks with Web3 leaders. This is Inside the Clubhouse. What's going on, Mr. Matthew? How are you, sir? Brother, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I, uh... I like to hey, consider it. I like it that you consider it. You're like, um, I'm good. It's not there's like a standard fucking awesome. You're like, I'm no, like, there wasn't. Good. Well, I had to think about it because I, I, I started meetings today at like, dude, no, no lie. Like, honestly, 7 a.m. my time. And that was like not really how I typically want to start my, my day in terms of meetings because it didn't, it didn't let up at all. Mm. Um, so I did. I had to think about that for a minute. Uh, but yeah, anyway, oh, here's, uh, here's Mr. Steve. Let me get him up here. I, uh, I did not start then, but I did drop a kid off and then started at eight 30 and I went back to back to back. By the way, I also invited, um, my partner in midnight movie club, uh, to come and join us. So as soon as we get into midnight movie club, I'd love to bring him up. He's, he's awesome. I, I went ahead and, uh, I brought him up now. If they, if, uh, if they want to come up now, they can just chill on stage. And when we get to that, there, there we go. Look at that. Perfect. Ask and ye shall receive. The best. Steve, what's up? How's it going? Hey, what's uh, up, Steve? How's, it, how's it going, Matthew? I am, uh, we will get to Midnight Movie Club. I have, I have very. I was telling James. I think I now know more about Matthew Lillard than Matthew Lillard. So I'm excited to have this, uh, I'm this so combo. Sorry. You deserve so much better, bro. We just met, and you deserve so much better than that. Oh no, I, I am more than thrilled. I am though, real quick. Like we'll probably start in a couple minutes because I like yeah, the, the thing we like to do is, is, is we want to get the room shared out. We want to get as big of an audience as possible. So if it's cool. I'm going to play some music while we get warmed Great. up. And in the meantime, Perfect. I just asked everybody else, share, retweet, like the room, comment down below. If you just comment a GM in the bottom right-hand corner, it helps get us uh, get us rolling here. So even just a GM, say hi to Matthew, um, uh, and uh, we'll get this thing rolling. I'll play some music for like a minute, and I'll share out the room as well, and then I'll, I'll get us rolling, I promise. <laughs> I could be a fantasy. I could tell you got big, big energy. It ain't too many of them that can handle me. But I might let you try it out the Hennessy. Make them sing to this thing like a melody. And if your girl ain't right, I got the remedy. It ain't too many of them that can handle me. Bad chick, I could be a fantasy. Tell me how you want it. Three, two, one, and I'm on it. Feel good, don't it? Good chick, you in a bunny. I'ma bust it on the pole like honey. Don't you be honest? Juicy, mini mate, but can't do it one mini mate. Not a side or a main. I'm the only one he entertain. Spinning his mind in the bank. I like what I see. A boss like you need a boss like me. Daddy from the streets. One more ask as we finish it out. We'll start this thing in about one minute and call it six seconds. But um, just share out the room. Comment the GM down below. I see people commenting. Appreciate the, the comments coming in down below. Aspiring nobody I see out there. Mackie. Mrs. NFT Bark from upstairs letting the kids home from school. Good to see you in there as well. Um, uh, if everybody could just share out the room or just, you know, with a tweet or just do a retweet and a like down there. It would mean a lot. We'll start in just a minute here with Matthew freaking Lillard. Three, so he moved low key. Trying to rock that mic like karaoke. On the count of three. Bad, 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 I'm the one they love to hate, but they can't get past. Pretty face, no waste, and a big old bed. <laughs> bad chick, I could be a fantasy. I could tell you got big, big energy. It ain't too many of them that can handle me. But I might let you try it out the Hennessy. Make them sing to this thing like a melody. 
ability. And if your girl ain't right, I got the remedy. It ain't too many of them that can have the least. Bad chick, I could be a fantasy. All right, we'll go ahead and get this kicked off. You know, I'll introduce our our awesome guest today. Super excited for this one. This is a geek out moment for me a little bit, which we'll all find out in a little bit here. But a man who needs no introduction. He's the star of Scream, uh, Hackers, SLC Punk, Scooby-Doo. She's all that. Uh, also a D&D nerd and a Web3 enthusiast. Matthew Lillard, how are you doing today? Good, brother. I'm good. Thank you for my... The, uh, the energy in your voice brings a big, fat smile to my old face, so thank you. Oh, no, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm more than happy. But before we get into all the things, the acting, and I have, you know, I have a lot of questions, um, but I do have a bone to pick with you to start. Drop it. You're a Manchester United fan. Oh, let's go. What do you got? I'm a Chelsea, Chelsea fan. Yeah, I knew it. I, I could tell in your voice you're all uppity. <laughs> I could tell, I immediately knew with your vigor and your piss and vinegar, I could tell you were a Chelsea fan. <laughs> this is the end of our conversation. James, I think you should step in here because this is over. I was going to say, over. over. So we, st- we, we stopped before we started. That, that's a new one for Steve. The man, I, I think this is going to get good. I'm saying, let man would look, you'd look very good in blue. Um, no. I, no. It's okay. Nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> can you, can you talk about, I have, I have a couple questions just related to your soccer fandom because I'm super stoked that you're into footy. Um, when and how did you get into soccer and what was that like? Uh, I love, but first of all, this is already my first, my favorite interview I've ever done. Um, so yeah, so I was in London doing a play and I happened to be going to pubs because I was young and sort of, you know, looking for something to do sort of before computers, right? And um, so I went and I, I started watching David Beckham and Paul Scholes and, and Ryan Giggs and like all these legends of Man U. And I watched Man U and Ryan Giggs run against Arsenal down the left side of the pitch to score a goal. And I was like hooked. And as I got into soccer football, I, you know, I started to understand that Manchester United was the Yankees of Major League Baseball, and I do not like the Yankees in any, by any stretch of the imagination. And so I tried to find other clubs. I tried to fall in love with Everton because of Landon Donovan, and I tried and and Tim Howard, and like I tried to find reasons to like any other club. And I kept coming back to Man U. And as Man U got worse and worse because they lost their legendary Sir Ferguson was this legendary manager, um, I was like drawn to them even more. And so now in this moment where we're still terrible, um, I love them unabashedly. So it, it makes it much easier to like them now that they're bad. And, you know, look, I get up every, I play football, I play soccer every weekend and keep torn between football and soccer but you know i play soccer every weekend i watch soccer um every weekend uh it's like my favorite sport in the world that's awesome and look i mean if you grew up like around those guys sort of at that time and you were you know you 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 know watching gigsy i mean that's a good time to be you know it's hard not to fall in love with that so i totally get it um that said i have a question about soccer with the world cup when you watch the World Cup, are you one that 
you know, picks a team? Do you like follow your favorite players? Do you pick a team based on your favorite? Like, for example, do you like England? Cause Harry Maguire not only has the most English sounding name, but is the most English looking person ever. Like, what makes, how do you pick your rooting interest there? I like, I love England. Uh, I you know, against, you know, I love England period. Uh, and not even Maguire can stop that love. Um, yeah, but so I so first of all, my you know my favorite team in the world is the men's national team for the United States. They had a great run. I plan to spend in, in three and a half years from now. I plan to spend an entire month on the road watching World Cup soccer. Um, and I love look, I love the English national team. Uh, Harry Kane's a beast. You know, Rashford is like one of my favorite athletes in the world. Um, and I and I sort of uh, so that's my team that I'm rooting for now. And then, at, you know, if they don't progress past this point, I'll find another team. I mean, I love France. And look, I just like great football. I mean, when you watch great soccer, it's hard not to fall in love with the sport. And so, who's you know, to me, the best two teams, if America's out, the best two teams uh, in the finals is, is what I want to see. I love that. I love that Who answer. Do love? What do you love national national wise? I root for my players, right? So tough run, Belgium, not great. Um, like, but I tend to root for my players. So wherever I see the guys that I really like, and what's weird is even when they leave, like Chelsea, like Eden Hazard, I still have this love for because they want a title with him, right? And like there's you yeah, know that sort of incredible. piece. So it's just like I kind of follow my players and, and where they go. Uh, I love the English national team because i he's never been a player, but Harry Kane is one of my, like the flow chart in Harry Kane's head is like, should I shoot? Are you open? Yes. Are you open? No. Still shoot. So I love Harry Kane. Like it's, it's the most fun. So I just love watching England. And you look at him, you're like, how is he an incredible athlete? Cause you look at him, he looks like a complete dope. And yet every time he's got a ball at his foot, he scores. It just makes no sense. Oh yeah. Uh, I, like, you know, oh, go ahead, sorry. coming. Pulisic is going to Man U. What, what do you do there? Yeah, this is this is a problem here because one, I love Polisic, and that is the word when Ronaldo's gone that Polisic will end up at Man U. I don't like it one bit, and I'm pretending it's not happening until it happens because I am I I I love that man. He is just so Captain America. He's just so great. He's great, and he needs to play. He needs to play. And I don't know if he's going to find playing time at Man U either, but um, that's the problem. I mean, look, our team is great. Our national team's coming up, and if you think the fact that our you know. It's sort of the fourth tier of athlete in American sports is playing soccer now. So, you know, if we could just collect some of those incredible, you know, United States football players to not go and follow their football dreams, but to keep playing soccer. I mean, soccer is the number one youth sport in America. So if we can just keep some of our great athletes on the soccer field, like America will be an incredible soccer force. Uh, this will, and I promise everybody, this won't just be a soccer conversation, but I rarely get to have this sort of conversation in America. So I have to ask you as a follow-up question. Do you think the path to America coming, because I'm, I'm bullish on like Gio Reyna and a lot of the young players. Do you believe the path to America's success in soccer is what Polisic does where you grow up, you're great, you go overseas? Or do you think the MLS can become a better league that actually lets people want to stay at home? It's a great question. So look, so I think that I have a kid that came up through um, through club soccer in California, which is, you know, incredible level of soccer. At age 13, he was playing for the state title. Our, he no longer plays. He burned out, went on to something else. Awesome. I celebrate that. Like, I was with him. It's my favorite thing in the world. I play soccer on the weekends now, and there's like 
adult pickup game and my son comes and plays with me, he's 14 years old, it's the best. So those kids that are on that team that came in second in the state are now on to LAFC Gal- Academy, Galaxy Academy. So I think that there's a real ability to continually grow our academy system here in the States. MLS is kicking ass. MLS has no TV deal, right? They picked up one next year with Apple, but the, they're selling out. I mean, LAFC sells out every game. Not every game, but damn near. Kansas sells out every game. Colorado sells out every game. So the success of MLS in the U.S. is, un, is like, it's, it's all world. So I think, look, in America, if you add money to something, people will find a way to do it, right? I mean, it's such, it's a horrible statement. But look, if, if our kids can figure out that they can make the same kind of money that Pulisic's making by staying in the United States, they'll stay here. But if they don't, then they're going to keep going over to Germany and Italy and the UK to, to you know, Ajax, all these great academies overseas to find money. I mean, that's the thing. They're chasing their dreams of being a professional footballer. And in general, it has been leading, leading to Europe. But I think as MLS becomes more successful, it will stay here. I, I love that take just because I do think people don't realize that I think like there's this antiquated take where people are like the MLS is so bad, but yet the MLS is like one of like the five most represented leagues in the world cup now. And if you watch a game, it's a good product now compared to what it used to be. And I think people don't realize that they think of it as like the old, and I I have a similar, I mean, I, I grew, I had spent a lot of time in Columbus living there. And so the crew was just like, you know, great, you know, so. And it's a great way to look. It's a great pastime. It's an hour and a half. You go with your kids. We have, we had LAFC tickets. It's a, it's a great opportunity. It's not like, you know, a basketball game is three hours or football game is three hours. It's like, it's a great family outing. It's not like a zillion dollars. The thing we have to do, if I had one thing to say to MLS, is like, look, when David Beckham came to play or Rooney came to play, like, that was great. Like, sort of like, it helped bring in people. Apparently, we're getting messy. Like, the MLS is going to have messy next year, which is crazy. Um, but I think that we need to get away from these aging footballers and these star vehicles and just make better teams and have a more competitive league. And I think you need relegation and sort of emulate some of those competitive things and that the sport has overseas. But um, I would get away from that and just make the best football you can and, and stop bringing in these, you know, these older stars. Yeah. We don't That's need slot and coming in shooting from no, half court, you know, I don't think to, you need that. I mean, he, from is, midfield. he is amazing. He, he is, is crazy. and hilarious. Um, He's hilarious. <laughs> but um okay well before we go on i'm still gonna i'm still gonna um we'll get off soccer because i'm sure everybody's like okay this is not what I, but like i'm still not gonna go to acting because i need to ask you another question because like this is where there is such alignment um as a nerd i am a nerd who coded zones in online muds multi-user <laughs> dimensions which are D pieces so i have to ask i heard a quote that i really loved when i was kind of like looking up some of your your D obsession and uh, you said what you love about D&D is it gives you the chance to recklessly use your imagination. And I got goosebumps. Can you talk about your love of D&D and kind of what that means to you? Yeah. So, um, look, I was a kid. So in my life, um, you know, 50, I'm almost 53 years old. Uh, so I was brought up in the era that D&D launched. And it was a time in life where, you were out and about and you're, you know, you're playing football in the streets and you're riding bike down to the store. And we would, we found this game Dungeons and Dragons 
And we would ride our bike down to this local game store. We'd buy little lead figures and then we'd go back up and we'd paint the lead figures and we'd start playing D&D game. And you would literally sit there for days on end and grow these characters into these heroes. And, you know, then we'd move on to play football and then we'd move on to play war in the backyard. And then about three weeks later, we'd get bored again and, or it'd get too hot outside and we'd go back to the store and we'd buy another lead figure and you'd start painting them again. And every time you did that, you'd tell these stories on the character that you painted, right? Um, am I still here? Can you hear me? No, you're good. I'm, I'm, I'm oh, just, sorry. I'm nodding my head along and just like enjoying okay. the, oh, enjoying I, the ride. I heard weird sounds. But um, so for me, look, I was a kid and then I moved to high school and I stopped playing. But for me, and, and look, and high school was not a great time for me. I had a severe learning disability. I was obese. I had glasses. I had braces. Like my world was terrible. And that same imagination that went into playing Dungeons and Dragons, that same sort of like storytelling and belief and make believe and and um, and being the lead in your own journey, right? In high school, I found acting. And so when you're terrible at everything, you're not great at sports and you can't do math to save your life and you're, you know, you're lost and you find something you're good at and that thing that you're good at changes your life, right? So me and acting, it changed my life. I mean, I'm still doing it. I'm 53 years old and I found something I was passionate about. And then every, when everyone else said, you can't be a professional actor, Oh, I nobody ever said that. They're like they would just always assume that I would grow out of it. But it was this thing that I fell in love with. And when you have something that you're passionate about, I don't care what it is, you will find a way to be successful. It may not be like you know you you may want to be an astronaut, and you may not end up being the astronaut, but you can find a place in that universe to bring you joy, so that you're doing something in life that gives you joy. Right. And so for me, Dungeons and Dragons and storytelling and sort of that make believe is the same tools and the same muscle I used in finding this passion in my life, which is acting, that has been the, you know, the one thing from eighth grade on that has been a constant, even when shit isn't going well, even when I'm struggling, even when it's hard and your career is going sideways, you know, you always have this kernel of passion that keeps you moving forward. No, that's beautiful. That's, I, I love that. And I love that those parallels you have. And um, speaking of acting, um, before we get into like what a lot of the things you're known for, something, I, I have two questions about, I'm going to go back to 19 year old Matthew Lillard and I got to okay. ask about skate TV. Um, <laughs> so you got the gig at 19 yeah. Uh, so, uh, You're were you? By the way, do you do this every? I'm gonna tune in every week now. Now I just want to hear you interview people. You're fucking great. Keep going. I, I I told you, Matthew. Like this is you did. Steve's legit. All right, keep going. Sorry. No, no, me, means a lot. I appreciate it coming from you, especially. You need a TV show. What are you doing with your life? Who are you? Where are you? Let's get to you. What are you doing? You should be doing this all the time. Oh, I, I do. I, I run a show. I mean, I, I, I have like six jobs now. I'm trying to duct tape a, a, a life together in the t this technology industry and figure out where it goes. Cause I, similar to your passion for acting, I have like a passion for tech that I've, I've never chased before. And I finally decided I'm 39. I'm like, fuck it. I'm going to go for it. So no, I appreciate and is you it asking. Working out? Is it working out? 
Um, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm riding the wave right now. I, I co-authored the first Harvard Business Review article about NFTs. I'm writing a book about NFTs with Penguin Publishing. Uh, I co-founded a media network that I'm working on right now. Um, I'm actually, I mean, people in this room know cause they're in it. I'm actually helping Starbucks with their NFT program. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of stuff. And then of course, James, I work with him at clubhouse archives. So, um, I'm doing a few things to try to make sure the bills are paid. It's all figured out. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm regardless of it. Like I realize that like being an entrepreneur and it's probably similar to being an actor, it's not necessarily about like getting rich and famous. It's about doing something you love every day. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Go ahead, James. Please. Did you did you like that answer? There's, eh, you know, it's all right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm working for I... Starbucks, writing my own book, wrote a Harvard Business Review article. That's Steve in a nutshell, by the way. So I just go go ahead, Matthew. Yeah, you literally just said what I was gonna say. Like if I had told you, you know, three years before you jumped off the cliff and said, "I'm gonna do the technology. I'm gonna follow this passion of technology," and then I had said, "Okay." you're going to do all these things. You'd be like, wow, that's incredible. I can't wait to get there. And here you are in the middle of it. And you're like, ah. And my whole thing is like, and, and I, and listen, from a piece of like my life, I always had this moment in acting. I'd be climbing a ladder, climbing a ladder, climbing a ladder. And I would, and this is my superpower in a way. I would never stop and look down and be like, wow. I would just be like, no, it's not enough. And the reality is that you miss the joy along the way if you're continually grinding the entire time. Like, yeah, grind. Fuck yeah, grind. Get after that shit. And don't believe the hype. And don't believe your own bullshit. But at the same time, every now and then, you have to be like, I, I think that you have to hold on to moments of brilliant success to keep you going up the ladder because that grind is never ending. Right? I always say to actors, like, if I could, you know, you know, you have to have something more in life to build towards. If you say to an actor, hey, if I, who wants in this room, you know, a national commercial? Like every actor in acting class will raise their hand and be like, wow, I'd love to make that money. That'd be great. And if I could snap my fingers and give them that national commercial, at the end of that national commercial, the first thing they're saying is like, this is great. What I really want is a TV show. And then you snap your fingers and be like, okay, here's your magical TV show. This is amazing. Can I get a movie? I really want a movie. There's no end to right? Because the minute you get it, you're going to want something else. So you have to, it can't be about achievement. It has to be about something much deeper than just money or success or status. It has to be like this drive, which is the thing you just said, which is I love, I'm passionate about technology. I want to do that the rest of my life. Yeah, that's I appreciate that. Like, that's really good feedback because it's a thing where, like, I find myself very good at celebrating my friend's successes. And I'm really good at living in the moment with my kids, like my eight and my 11 year old or my wife and stopping to pause. And it, as you were saying, it's so funny. It, in case you were wondering if what you're saying is like so spot on, as you were saying, like, you need to actually give yourself credit or take a moment to celebrate the success. My wife is in the audience and she sent me up a heart. So she's like listening and like, yeah, listen to Matthew Lillard, Steve. So uh, appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's good, dude. It's, it's one of those things that, listen, it's going to get bad again, right? You're in the middle of crypto winter. I mean, it's not a great time for anyone, but, um, you know, you sort of have to like celebrate. My whole thing is like, you have to hold on to the wins. Because those are the moments that get you through the times when it's really bad, right? And it's, 
you have to you have to have something in your memory bank to be like oh yeah i remember that time because it reminds you that you're supposed to be here that's awesome um speaking of remembering those times I got, I, I got to get the skate TV. Cause I'm like, Oh so, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. You're great. This is awesome. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation. I, I will say this though. Um, like, were you a skateboarder before you did that? Or did you have to learn about like fakey jumpy ollies and yeah. stuff on the fly? <laughs> yeah. So if you, as most of the audience has no idea what we're talking about. Skate TV was a show made by Nickelodeon in probably 19, um, 89 or my, maybe 1990. And probably probably the 90, right? It bookended with Wild and Crazy Kids, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I, I was definitely before I went to New York. So I think it was like 20. I um, was born in 1970. So it was probably 89 or 90. Um, but the idea was like Nickelodeon really wanted to capitalize on the success of skateboarding. And there's this guy named Tony Hawk and this, you know, Stacy Peralta was the director. And basically they were like, oh, kids are skateboarding. We want to make a show for those kids. And so they went out to like the, the king of skateboarding, this guy named Stacy Peralta, who invented or started the skateboard company, Pal Peralta, and said, hey, you're directing things now. We want you to come and direct these episodes of television. And the idea was like, Skate Master Tate, God bless his soul, he died a couple years ago, but he was sort of the authentic voice. He was a DJ and a professional skateboarder, but he was the authentic voice of the skateboarding world. <laughs> that was brought in as like the American cheese, you know, pretty white boy who was going to sort of give, um, you know, give the sort of right down the middle viewpoint on the interviews. And so we did like, the funny thing is, I think we did like, episodes in three days at the Pink Motel, which is a very famous skate spot out in Sun Valley. And during those three days, we met every single skateboarder, legendary skateboarder, you know, Alba, Tony Hawk, um, Christian Caballero, like all of these, not as coppers, like these legends of the space. And I, you know, I was a skateboarder, but I wasn't like that kind of skateboard. I was like the dude who like rode the skateboard from his, his house to his buddy's house. And so like at one point I asked Nottis Coppice, like what's the most gnarly trick you ever pulled off? And he looked at me like I had just pissed in his Cheerios. He was like, who are you? And you're such a dope. Um, so yeah, it was a very funny experience. The funniest thing about that was that I took my mom and my dad and my sister to, I got paid like, I think I got paid, like, $1,000 an episode. I owed half in taxes into my agent. I think I owed my mom and dad, like, three grand. And then I went out and bought my dad a pool table for Father's Day. Because I was like, oh, I'm going to be so successful off of this show <laughs> that I'm going to, you know. I'm... In fact, I took my mom and my dad and my sister to breakfast one morning. And I said, hey, guys, um... You know, the show's coming out in a couple, you know, in a month or so. We should go to Disneyland because I'm going to be so successful after the show and so famous after the show. I won't be able to go to Disneyland ever again because I'll just be so famous. And cut to, you know, I was at Disneyland six months ago and nobody gave a shit. So there you go. That's amazing. Um, last question, Skate TV question. It's a two-parter about Tony Hawk. The yeah. first is, as you're interviewing him at that time, did you have any idea what a giant cultural icon he would be? And number two is, how bad was that ponytail when you interviewed him? 
Um, well, I it was so funny because he didn't like all these other guys looked like gnarly skateboarders, and Tony Hawk was kind of a normal, average-looking kid, right? Um, with his ponytail, but he, I mean, he was pretty big at the time. I mean, even back then, Tony was like, I don't think he had, I don't think he had the video game yet, which really set him, you know, off in a different stratosphere, but, um, he was very sweet. I mean, look, they were all sweet. I mean, you're doing, there's never been a show like it since, right? Um, and it really was, you know, look, it was made by Stacy Peralta, who loved skateboarding and really was a love letter to those, to those guys in that, in that, I mean, that time of skateboarding was, was huge. So, yeah. No, that's great. Um, Going good your movie career, going to your movie career a little bit. By the way, the reason I played the song at the beginning was it's a remix with Mariah Carey's fan- Mariah Carey's Fantasy, which came out in 1995, which is when Hackers came out. So it was actually intentional when I did the intro song uh, there. Um, obviously, Hackers was big, serial. You took off there. The movie I most know you for personally is, in fact, true story. Me and my buddy, I'm going to text him after this because we literally wrote a screenplay, which was this terrible Scream Mulrats mashup because those were our two favorite movies at the time. Um, and still, we, we still love them. What is sort of the movie that your favorite role you've done? And what is your favorite movie you've been in? Because I know this could be different, like the role versus the movie. Like yeah. what two things stick out to you when I ask that? Um, well, the thing, well, first of all, Hackers was a huge bomb when it came out. It wasn't until like Apple Store started popping up and people became aware of the power of the personal computer that Hackers became like sort of an iconic film. I mean, it's not an iconic film, but it's definitely a pop culture. It's, it's a cult classic for sure. Cult like, classic, I, yeah. I, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And there's talk about doing another one. I mean, there is like buzz around the idea of everyone, you know, where computers are now compared to where they were then. Um, there's a chance that movie gets, you know, a part two, which would be fun. Um, but the, so for me, look, the most iconic part for me in my life is, I mean, joyful performance for me is Steve-O and SLC Punk, which is a movie that I'm super proud of. I was the lead of, I didn't get to be the lead of very many movies. Um, so that, that was, that was a big deal for me. And it's still to this day, if I'm doing convention or signing autographs, you know, the, the kids that needed to find that movie, who found that movie, um, you know, impacted their lives in a really profound way. So I love that movie. And then I think that probably the best movie I was ever in was a movie called The Descendants with George Clooney. I mean, that movie, Alexander Payne film, is an incredible film. Um, and then, you know, for me today, um, Scooby-Doo, I played Jackie in Scooby-Doo. And so for me, that movie is great because I still... You know, I still do the voice. Um, it's still something that, you know, I, I can find kids anywhere and do the voice and sort of change, you know, bring a smile to a kid's face. I mean, not to sound cheesy, but the idea of like having a role that's that iconic and still being able to do it and still being able to share that with kids. I mean, it's something I, I, I actually really cherish. I hated it for a long time. Like I would hate the fact that people would be like, oh, you're shaggy. I'd be like, dude, I have so many other movies. I have so many, it's like, you know, I've been on stage in London. Like there's all these things. I, I had this like sort of like this feeling of shame around that movie because 
you know, it was kind of cheesy and, um, you know, it, it just, it didn't have the kind of reputation, like SOC Punk was a like, great acting moment. I was proud of that work. And something about me was like for a long time, ashamed of Scooby-Doo 1 and 2. And now, you know, I, I've come to realize that, and I'm not really sure why, but that movie, that franchise, that performance, um, for, you know, 20 and 30 year olds, those kids are, you know, it's a really impactful film for, you know, whatever reason. And, you know, and, and it's left, uh, it's left a mark on those kids, just like SLC Punk did for like disenfranchised punk rock youth, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's, it, first of all, when you said there might be like a, a hackers, another hackers movie, if I was like a, a Labrador, my tail would be wagging. Like I was just so pumped to hear that. That would be dope. Uh, revive series, revive, you know, the, the whole franchise would be very cool. Um, you know, with, with that said, like, yeah, like you kind of actually, you're such a good interviewer. You got in front of an, my next question, which was actually specifically going to be, you know, you, you sort of, you know, founded the thespian, you know, club in your high school and you're like classically trained, you're on stage in London. And yet you, you seem to get, you know, cast sometimes in like, you know, that, you know, a role like that. But, like, it's really interesting, and I was curious if there's, like, this sort of inspiration behind, like, being almost, like, not a show stealer, because that sounds like it has a negative connotation to it, but popping off the screen, because I feel like in every role you've been in, whether it's Shaggy or Scream or, obviously, SLC Punk is the lead or, or Hackers is Serial, there's sort of this, like, pop factor to, like, this excitement and over the top. Is that just something that's always been in your acting style, even when you were sort of doing the classical roles, or is it something you sort of cultivated? Um... Again, great question. Um, no bullshit. That's a great question. Nobody ever asked me that. So it's a couple of things. First of all, um, I believe at the end of the day, like if, if you had to say to me, hey, Matt Lillard, what's your acting style? And I've had to figure it out, right? Because there was a time in my life I was like, oh, I may never act again. What am I going to do? I don't want to go back and sort of pick up a day job. Um what am I going to do? How am I going to feed my kids? And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to teach acting the rest of my life, right? That was my answer to in case I'd ever work again. And so I started teaching. And in that teaching, I was like, okay, you have to develop a technique. You have to have a belief. You can't sit in front of a group of kids or a group of you know, peers and be like, hey, this is how you make this scene different or better or more engaged, right? You have to have a point of view. And so in that, in that process, I discovered that my belief is that people in energy are intrinsically interesting to watch. Um, I always point like, you know, if a fight is breaking out on the side of the street and you're driving a car, like you're, you'll slow down to watch a fist fight break out. Cause you're like, well, it, you know, two people in energy is like, what the hell's happening? They're fighting. What's going on? You know? So you're drawn to it. So I always say that people in energy are in, you're like, that's what you want in actors. You want people to have things going on because you want to be drawn to what they're doing. So, you know, when I was young, I would just hurl energy, which is an expression we use in acting. Like I would just be doing everything because I would be filling moments with stuff because I wanted stuff to be, like I wanted my character always to be alive. I always wanted to be doing stuff. Like Serial Killer has a toothbrush. So there were scenes, like I was chewing on my toothbrush. Why does he have a toothbrush? Because he didn't have a home to go back to, right? There's like a line in there. It's like, yeah, his mom and dad have left him. So I'm like, he's always carrying a toothbrush. So like, <clears throat> excuse me, that somebody 
who's like, you know, there's a reason for that. Like you're building reason behind everything you're doing. But that, again, isn't just a toothbrush. You're, like, you're using it in scenes. You're like making choices. You're making creative choices. Like you're engaging in, in everything that, that no beat is just a normal beat. There's always something else going on. Um, and so, you know, I would do that for all my parts because I would be like, you know, every time before I went to work, like I would, you know, rent like uh, like a hotel room. I'd rent like a rehearsal space and I would go in with my script and I would start working like all the lines in all my scenes so that when I got to work, I knew everything. I made all these choices. I knew all my lines so I could just be there and be present and not have to worry about everything because I was already dialed into what was happening, where he was going, why he was doing things and making all these choices. And what happens is that in general, when you get on a film set, like you're just another department, right? You're like the acting department is the same as the grip or the hair and makeup or, you know, or, or the you know symphony that goes behind the scoring. Like you're just part of the storytelling process. But if you show up and you have a lot of things going on and you can fill those beats, like directors are like, oh, that's great. I got that department. That department that department's interesting and done. Now I have to worry about this department. I have to fix that department. I need more from the lighting department. But if my acting department shows up and brings a ton of stuff. Um, and they have the ability to dial you back. You're like, hey, Matt, that's too much. Bring it back a little. Like, that's the best. So my whole thing is, like, I always want to be an actor to show up with a full bag of tricks that could be scaled up or scaled back, depending on what's needed by the director. Um, and so I think that that's how I ended up sort of early on, not knowing better, and just hurling energy everywhere. I mean, you look at me in Wing Commander, I'm like, every line is like out of 10. It's hilarious. Um, to who I am now as an actor, which, you know, I, I don't don't do that as much because I, I do believe the older I've gotten, the more I understand sort of the power of simplicity. Although I'm never really simple. You know, interesting question, and it, it, it's sort of based on your answer there. Like that first awesome answer. I love like hearing about that. That's something I've I've kind of wondered. And like you mentioned, like when you get on set, it's a job like everybody else. Whoever it is, whoever's holding the camera, whoever's holding the mic, whoever's holding the, all those things, right? Um, so this is kind of like an like an odd maybe question, but you mentioned like kind of your you know growing up and how you grew up. How did you adjust to like? Is that something you instilled in your kids when you were raising them? Because you were obviously very successful before you had them. How do you handle that balance of like not of, of getting your kids to realize what you obviously realized, which was, you know, the fact that like every person on this set matters. Every like, how did you instill that in them yeah. knowing that they were growing up in a great situation? Yeah, humanity, dude. It's not easy, especially these days with social media. I mean, I, it's it's a really um, it's a challenge of, of raising good human beings. Um, you know, I, 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 and I, and I think we've done it. I mean, it, it's still yet to be determined. I have a 20 year old, I have a 17 year old non-binary kid, a girl, a non-binary kid, and then a boy at 14. So I, I have like, I think I have really outstanding kids. And here's the thing. I think that you apply lots of love and lots of discipline, meaning there is freedom within form. This is your form, right? I understand, like you can have that kind of freedom, 
But here are the rules, here are the expectations. Here's what I expect. And delivering clear boundaries allows people to make mistakes and be like, hey, cool, mistake. We're going to go, like, there's a punishment associated with a mistake that you already understand. We're going to apply it. It's not dramatic. Like, it's just, you know, we're going to take that away or whatever it is. So that there's clear expectations on how they're supposed to behave, right? Um, and within that, you're shaping a sense of right or wrong. And then I think you, apply, I think you have to apply, I think you have to apply, and I think you have to be able to be candid with your own struggles, right? When you make a mistake, you have to say sorry. Like when you have, when you are like, when you behave poorly, you have to acknowledge it and you have to say, Hey, I, I overreacted. I treated you bad. I, you have to be able to show them your mistakes. Um, and then directly in terms of other people, I don't know where that, I, I would call that like, you know, humanity. Like how do you apply humanity and raise good people? Um, I think you have to, I think you have to be a good person. And you have to like, you have to hold that space, right? You have to say, this isn't right, or this is wrong, or, or point out like your own, like have a core set of beliefs that you then articulate. You fucking talk about it, right? And I think that that's part of it. Look, uh, you know, I, I don't know, it's also a gift of God. Like, I, you know, I, I don't know, we have great kids. I love our kids. I think our kids can sit in this room, in this conversation and hold their space at every age. Um, and that's something I'm really proud of. But I think that's also like, we're lucky that way. I don't think that everyone has that same, I don't know, it's, it's, it's all the things, right? Um, but it's effort. It is work. And it, you have to take fucking responsibility for it. You are responsible for how you raise your kids. And that is in your actions and your deeds. And, and I think that that sometimes people are like, you know, they're, they're, they're not, it's not important to them. Or it may not be as important as other things like making money or, you know, I mean, look, addiction, like there's all kinds of reasons that kids go wrong. And a lot of them aren't their fault. So God, that's a very tough question. I'm also like, you know, I, 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 we're in the mix. I have great kids. They have not always been easy. I have a non-binary kid who on their journey had to figure shit out. And that was not easy in any stretch of imagination. So it's like, you know, we have had good times and bad times. But the reality is that smother with love, unconditional love, that is I think where you start and that applies to everything, right? It applies to the person on the street, it applies to people who, you know, how you interact with people that ask for autographs. I mean, all of the stuff that come along with my job, I think that my kids have always seen me in some capacity um, being, I don't know, incredibly appreciative and respectful of, the gifts of my life I've had in my life. That's awesome. Am I, I, am I dude, am I talking too much? I'm talking. No, too much. no, I'm, I'm just, how do, I'm, you do it? how do you do it? You're raising kids. You're raising <laughs> the audience. What do you say? Um, like, how do you raise good kids? You're look, you have an 11 year old. That's a young adult. How do you do it? Yeah. Well, my 11 year old, she's like, 
the greatest thing in the world. Like we're very lucky. We basically have like an extra adult who's more patient with her brother than we are sometimes. Um, and they're both awesome. Um, like to give you a very brief story about her personality. One time we were picking her up and this is before they're, you know, they're doing stuff to show off. And she's like two or three years old from daycare. And I'm like, Hey, sweet. So you're ready to go. And she says, hold on. And she helps some boy put his shoes on. And, you know, I kind of nudged her teacher joking around. Obviously they're two. So I was joking. I was like, Oh, you know, she's got a little crush. And her teacher goes, no, actually that kid has developmental disabilities and she doesn't want him to have to wait to be last. And so she puts his shoes on after she gets her own on to make sure that he doesn't get embarrassed to be like the last one out the door. And like, that's her in a nutshell. So my daughter is like my heart. Um, but to me, like, it's a matter of like two things, like one, love the shit out of them. And, and, and that stuff kind of takes care of itself. Like, so that they understand that like, yes, there are consequences, but I love you. And there is never a time when you're in trouble that you can't call me that I won't be there. Um, that's something that I've always instilled in them. And I think what you said, like, I have a lot of aligned values with you in the sense that I admit when I'm wrong. So if I'm in the car with my kids and we're driving to, you know, wherever, and I freak out on them because they do something, I will take a deep breath and turn around and be like, I shouldn't have yelled. That was bad. Here's why I was upset. And I let them know that I also make mistakes so I can set that example that like, I'm not this infallible being who's like disciplining them. Um, and so that's what I, I try to do. Um, but I think the thing that's interesting to me about being a parent is that like, I don't know, like to me, it's like when you're growing up, you think your parents know everything and then you become a parent. You're like, holy shit, my parents were figuring it out as they went along. I had no idea. So I don't know. It's just like this thing that constantly changes, but I just like, to me, it's like, like I love the shit out of them and just, you know, make sure that I know that. And I say that to them. And the other thing is I make them a priority and they know that. So like, I was in Miami for Art Basel last week, which is like, you know, a major, you know, art NFT type thing. And all the best stuff was happening on Saturday night. And I was taking a red eye because my daughter had a choir concert on Sunday because that's the priority. And she knows that and she sees that. And it was 100% worth it, not just to go. And it was great, but she was bragging to her friends about it on her iPad when she was like FaceTiming them. I'm like, okay, they see that I love them. They understand that. So to me, it's like love admitting fault and mistake and just trying to be empathetic that it's really hard being a kid. You know, like I, when I was a kid, I would hear teachers and parents and people say, you have such a tough life, ironically. And I understand that to me, it's like, it is hard being a kid. You're changing. Things are crazy, especially during COVID. So I just try to be really empathetic to what they're doing while also trying to find that balance of like discipline versus rewards, if that makes sense. And I, I don't have it figured out. I don't know, but they, they've done all right so far. And I just hope they stay on the right path. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that look half of the half of the one thing I always say to actors is that you can't do it alone. Like you have to have fellowship. You have to have these moments of community, right? And so I, I like the idea of being in these spaces and having these kind of candid conversations because I do think like somebody out there is hearing you in a different way, right? Like the ability to speak about it out loud and in public, I think, is really powerful. And I think that we have to keep having these conversations, which I think is one of the great things about Twitter spaces. Um, yes. And also, like, just to be clear, like my wife, I have an incredible partner in my wife. Like, it is not me. It is not just me. That's for sure. I don't think that we could do it. Either one of us would raise the kids we raised if we raised it by ourselves. So she's in just my wife's. I'm super lucky that way, too. Yeah, I, I would co-sign that. And not just because I'm not just saying this because she's in the crowd. People who listen to my morning show, like, they know I, it's, she's somebody I talk about all the time because 
you know, for me personally, chasing a dream at 39 with two kids is a lot different than like if I was younger and chasing it and was single or whatever. And, you know, the fact that she unconditionally not only supports me, but encourages me is something I do not take for granted. And I try to make sure she knows that because, you know, I, you know, someone asked me, I'm going like a podcast next week. They're like, what are the five most important things to you right now? And I think they expected these answers about like web three and all this stuff. And my answers were number one, be a good husband and father. Number two, be kind. I don't remember even remember three through five, but those are like my top two answers because like, you know, I always tell my kids, you'll never regret being kind. Even if you get taken advantage of or something and you're bummed or whatever, like there's no reason not to be. So um, I'm with you on the thing with the, with my wife. I mean, it's, it's just such a lucky, I feel extremely fortunate to have someone so supportive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I completely hundred percent. Um, let's, let's, let's get, let's get to your journey into web three. Cause I think, you know, I know a lot of people here are, uh, big time NFT nerds like myself. And, um, you know, I, I've invited midnight movie club back up. If y'all can uh, pop back up, if you're able to, uh, inviting you back to speak, but, uh, talk about your journey into sort of web three and, uh, and midnight movie club in general. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, it's a, I'm glad that you brought Bill Wardy up. He's um, he's the mastermind behind uh, Midnight Movie Club. Uh, at this time last year, actually, like just before Christmas last year, uh, Bill called me up, and I had been investing in crypto for a while, um, and NFTs were you know just popping off, right? I mean, it, things had just started going crazy, and every time I read something about NFTs, I was like, I just don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, and Bill Wordy, out of the blue, we had worked together on a movie um, years ago, and he called me up and said, hey, what do you know about NFTs? And I was like, nothing. Let's go grab coffee because I am interested. Uh, and, you know, and look, and I, I had been knee deep in crypto because I was like, oh, this is an event of a lifetime. And I really want to be, I don't want it to let it go. And I had, the weirdest thing is I'd gotten into crypto because I had this dream. And I woke up with my wife. I said, I had this dream. And that same day, somebody came to my wife and said, you and Matt should do something about crypto. And so she came back and that sort of like opened up the possibility and I started investing. And, and so when Bill came to me talking about NFTs, I was ripe for it because I was like, oh, I kind of had missed early Bitcoin and obviously and I kind of missed early Ethereum and here was NFTs and they were raging. And I'm like, oh my God, it's so early. I want to get in, but I didn't understand it. Bill came to me. And, he, and I said, look, I don't understand like a JPEG that's for sale. And, and the thing that was the difference maker for us, for Midnight Movie Club, and for the conversation we were having, was that it allowed access to things that could be protected, right? It could be something you could build a community around and not just transact in, but you could collate behind and use as, as an entrance you know, and, and, and you could build with and not just transact with. And so that's sort of what he came to me and he pitched Midnight Movie Club. Um, and Midnight Movie Club, I feel like I should bring Bill up. Bill, do you want to jump in here? Sure. Yeah. Um, guys, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. It's Hi, been buddy. a while Hi, since buddy. we, how you doing? Hi, it's been a while since we were on a space <laughs> trying to get my sea legs back. Um, yeah. So the whole idea, again, like, like kind of like what Matt said, when I first heard of nfts i was like well why are people paying for jpegs again right click save like you can just have it if you really want to have that image it was when i found out about like the possibilities of the utility of the underlying technology and that's sort of that was the light bulb moment 
of okay these things are are more than what's like on the surface um so yeah that's what got like the brain working and just going okay well how can this be used in the film world and like what are the you know problems that the old sort of like you know original version of film has and what is the web three possibilities offer and the biggest thing was yeah like reaching out to the community um being able to get actual input from people because one of the things i've noticed going to meetings is you'll go and pitch something and they'll be like oh yeah that's not what audiences want these days and then you're on like forums and you're like dude people are having the same complaints about like why these modern movies suck and but you guys just keep turning out the same thing so why don't why don't instead of like you being the, the middleman, why don't we go directly to people and see kind of what they want and allow them to, to put some input in while still allowing the creatives to, you know, see their vision through. Um, so yeah, seeing like how the utility of stuff, you know, you can use creative DAOs to let people put input into um, some of the creative decisions, just being able to connect to people. And one of the biggest things is, you know, bringing down the gates of the film industry, you know, both Matt and I came from the Midwest and, and we had no connections to the film industry. Um, didn't have like a, you know, film producer uncle or studio head that we knew that could get us a job. Um, so we just kind of had to break in ourselves and, you know, by launching the Midnight Movie Club, we're able to kind of do that like for people. So everyone can kind of, you know, join in. We can be part of this thing. We have like the night school where we're offering, um, we want to be able to do classes because film school is expensive, man. Um, but nowadays people are learning all kinds of new trades just on, you know, YouTube and from each other. Um, and yeah, so we're just like, well, why don't we kind of offer that as well? And like, like NFTs yeah. will allow you to do that. So you can sign up for the NFT and then you can join and, the classes and yeah. there's just so many really opportunities. About, yeah. It was really about how can you build a community around independent films and specifically genre films, right? Cause there's mm -hmm. like a voracious fan base there. And that's something that we both love. And like, we're like, okay, people are building, you know, board yacht club and all these other NFTs are transactionable, right? I want to transact, sweep the floor. Like, how do we, you know, how do we collect? And I was like, okay, we're never going to be a place to collect necessarily. What we're going to be is we're going to build a community, which I still think is the future of NFTs, right? The, the ability to build authentic communities around these digital assets, which I think is really exciting. But that's, that's sort of how it started. Yeah, and yeah, so I mean, I was just going to say really quick, like film school, the, the major benefits of when I went to film school, yeah, you're learning how to use the equipment and, you know, sort of film theory and stuff. But the people that I met are the people that I still work with, the people that I go to for advice on career stuff, the people I go to when I need my script read or need eyes on a pitch deck. Like the community is the thing that benefits the most from film school. And we wanted to create that digitally so we can connect people all over the world versus just people that happen to go to this one school in this like four year period. You know, we wanted to just try to bring everyone together and kind of make that opportunity equal globally. Yeah, that's, that's really, I mean, one of the things that I think people miss because they think of like a lot of times NFTs, they see as, you know, digital pictures of monkeys that are worth a lot of money versus kind of what you're building, which I think niche applications are something that are, are missing and not that this is niche. Everyone loves movies or has some sort of movie they love, right? Or, or film or TV or whatever it may be. But it seems like the goal is find people with that common interest, uh, get them together and when you create a community, like one of the things like, you know, Board Ape Yacht Club obviously was one of the early ones. It's like, I met business partners. I met lifelong friends. And it sounds like sort of that's the direction you're going is, can we create this community, sort of co-create together in that way? At the same time, we 
build those connections and find those people who have a shared passion. Is that, is that fair to say? One, dude, that is it in a nutshell. Gathering around, our belief is that if you build something for a specific demographic that nobody else is building things for, people will come find it and like revere that community. Cause you're like, oh, you all love genre, genre movies. We're gonna make genre movies together. We're gonna include you in the creative DAO. Like we're gonna do all these elements. You're gonna be there beginning, middle and end of this filmmaking process. And then we're gonna do it again. And together we're gonna create all these opportunities for us to interact. Because I'm speaking the same language as you are because we love the same thing. And to me, it even goes further than like, sort of like, oh, I met friends like, and business partners, that's amazing. But, to, but nobody, the thing about Dungeons and Dragons, right? So I built a company called Beetle and Grimm's. We make high-end box editions of Dungeons and Dragons. And my whole thing is, and my experience has been like, you're building something for a community that not a lot of people are building things for, and you're doing it in an authentic way. People are like, holy shit, this is for me. I want to be a part of that. And so that was, that's our goal, right? And, um, you know, it's still our goal. And we has been like a whole, like it's been a whole journey, which is not all up. I mean, it's been up and down as we as we've gone through, um, you know, which has been complicated. That's awesome. I we should James, you know who we need to plug them in with in some way. Frank from D Gods actually, which is one of the bigger, it's the biggest NFT community in Solana. He has a uh, TED talk that he did when he was 16, a uh, TEDx talk about watching a movie a day. And I think he was going to go to film school. So that would be a good, we should uh, offline try to see if we can get a connection with you in some way there, just because like, you know, passion within the space and kind of seems like the right sort of uh, direction. So, and I, I would be shocked if one, if not multiple of your movies weren't on that list. So we should, we should make the connection at some point. Um, be great. No, this is, this is awesome. I mean, like, honestly, like to me, this is what like this is inter like the whole interview has been first of all fantastic appreciate it because I know we're running up against against time here in a second but I just wanted to one thank you for talking and two is there anything on Midnight Movie Club that you also wanted to get out before we kind of finished up because I mean I, I didn't want to like skirt it but I really enjoyed yeah. the actual spaces conversation here <laughs> yeah it was, it was I, dude I loved it I think you're great at your job you made the right choice ditching whatever the hell you were doing before this moment and jumping both feet into this life because you're fucking great at it and you should keep kicking ass and you're great, first of all. Second of all, Midnight Movie Club, this is what I want to say. So our whole thing is that we were going to launch and we have everything set. We have the contract set. We have all the art done. And at the end of the day, we realized that we couldn't make money with the amount of money. We, we couldn't make movies with the amount of money we would have taken from the launch of, um, you know, with the minting of our project. So what we did is like, okay, if we can't do something. I can't in my name, in my godforsaken name, and Bill can't in, in our Midwest values launch something, take people's money, and then not have something to deliver. So we went, okay, we're going to go out and produce a movie. When we produce that movie, we are going to launch and mint the Midnight Movie Club to support that film. There'll be two separate entities, but it will be built alongside and in conjunction with this other project. We can't, we've not yet got the movie made. So as soon as we get the movie made, one of these movies greenlit to go, we will go to Mint, the Midnight Movie Club, and we will start to engage the community in an authentic way. But, you know, until we can do that, we can't take anything back. Does that make sense? And I think that, you know, 
in all honesty, it's it's just been it's sort of been a grueling process to have to to change trajectories in the middle of like a, a long growth of community. Yeah. So essentially, like when you know, kind of right as we were getting ready to launch, that's kind of when you know, crypto NFTs, the stock market, everything kind of shit the bed. So we had to regroup and kind of come up with this new plan of, okay, well, let's go the more traditional route. It's going to be a little bit more of a hybrid thing where we're reaching out to, you know, other production companies and um, traditional film investors and pitching the project to them. So that would be when we launch them in a movie club, the movie's happening, whether or not people, you know, come on board of the NFT project or not. Um, and we've actually kind of explored as well, like uh, in this hybrid model of finding, you know, kind of NFT crypto degen whales and talk to them about becoming investors in the film. So if there's any out there that are interested, slide into those DMs. Uh, happy to talk to you about that stuff. But yeah, so the, the, the goal, though, is to have this first movie going so that the, the moment that we mint, you're already in like, the, you know, the process of following us through pre-production of this film and immediately learning the process of yeah. filmmaking. You're engaging into the community. You're engaging in the creative, the creative DAO decisions with us and just coming along yep. for the entire ride. So we didn't want to have that launch like, and then sit we, around, yeah. wait forever yeah. kind of, kind of deal. It is not dead. It's just, we're waiting for the right time. Yeah. It's, and it's but been dude, an interesting journey they, because yeah. I mean, just really quick, like the, the interesting thing about launching like an NFT project is, you know, you're building a company from the ground up, like in the public eye, you know, like people are engaged, they're asking questions. When are you-